This is Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. My guest is Steve Turner. This is a man who, gosh, I've known him for an awful long time, although we haven't spoken for, for ages. He's got a book called Mud Ride, A Messy Trip Through the Grunge Explosion. Of course, Steve was a member of Green River and Mud Honey, done his own solo stuff. And it's just a, it's a delight to have you on the program, Steve. Nice to see you again. Yeah, thanks a lot. It's been a long time. It's been a while. <laughs> and I mean, it's been a long time for you being in this business. You say something at the at the end of your book, before we get to the epilogue, you say, Mud Honey, we're making good money. We're all living off of it. So this gave me the impression that my indifference worked well. If we were more serious, would we have made better records? I don't know. Mud Honey did get serious as the years went by. As the grunge explosion faded, we got more serious. Kind of funny. We also got older and appreciated what we did, what we'd achieved in a different way. We helped create grunge. I don't have any regrets about that. <laughs> Interesting words there, Steve. I'm I'm just thinking that over the years, you must have contemplated that. You must have thought to yourself about that label, grunge, and about... <laughs> your involvement yeah uh i mean a lot of people kind of bristled at the term yeah because you know no one likes being labeled necessarily um but there was a certain point i guess it was 1995 when i sort of dug in my heels and i said you know what if we're not grunge nobody is because we mark and i would always use that term grunge to describe really dirty guitars yes and uh if out of all the bands that are kind of lumped together, we are the grungiest. <laughs> right. Yes. So I'm okay with the term. But the term itself, let me just go back a little bit because you and I were in Seattle at the time. And I remember that I remember Kim from Soundgarden calling up the radio show I was doing one time and I was playing Killing Joke. And I remember Kim uh -huh. calling up and saying, what is this? What is that? <laughs> and then another night, Kurt called me up. I mean, it went on like that. People were very, very interested in what was going on. But in Seattle itself at the time, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, but nobody considered themselves to be in a grunge group or a grunge at the time did they no it was you know almost all of us in the the bands that are collectively known as grunge we all came out of the punk and hardcore scene yes and uh kind of slowly started evolving as everybody was around the country trying to figure out where to go after hardcore uh my point of view is you can only go so fast and hardcore got going as fast as it could and then what do you do you start to slow down <laughs> And a lot of different people found different ways to do that. Black Flag completely slowed down to a creepy crawl. And that was a huge influence on the Melvins, for example. And uh, like you, you mentioned Killing Joke. Yes. Uh, to me, Soundgarden was very influenced by that UK post-punk stuff, like Killing Joke, Public Image, um, a lot of the Rough Trade stuff, Gang of Four, yes. uh, Joy Division, Bauhaus. They had, like Kim had a very treated guitar sound at that time, very kind of post-punk, lots of flange and phaser and whatnot on it. Um, then they got 
you know, they started incorporating uh, more of a kind of a classic rock sort of heaviness. Yes. I know a lot of people kept comparing their sound to sort of a Led Zeppelin. It was kind of like if Led Zeppelin was trying to play post-punk. <laughs> yes. There's another band from England at the time that I used to play on my show that I'm I'm curious to know how much you think they were influential folk devils. I love the folk devils. Yeah, Mark and I both really, really liked those first couple seven-inch records that they did. Um, I still, I DJ sometimes, and I almost always play the folk devils. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I really like that band. Yeah. Yes, yes. The the the, the brother uh, of Ian Lowry, the lead singer, Dave, uh, just sent me just the other day. He knew I was going to be doing this interview, uh-huh. and he sent me a press uh, clipping from way back when where it's a quote, somebody, I, I, some newspaper somewhere, saying how much Mud Honey admired folk devils. I don't know whether they'd spoken to you or what, but I thought it was an, it was a, it was an interesting little clip. It was nice to yeah, see. It would have been either me or Mark. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So let's um, go. Yeah, we, what about world domination enterprises? Oh yes. Remember them? That, yes. That was kind of a absolutely. I think yes. Tad was really influenced by world domination enterprises. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yes. Yeah. I want to just go back in time now to 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 the beginnings because you talk about it in your book and 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 as as I know and you know, the scene in Seattle was 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 skater kids and there was punks and whatever, but it wasn't as cohesive as, as I think the, the music press would like to think it was. There was sort of different groups here. And and when I say groups, I mean groups of people all over the place, but it was a very odd scene in Seattle in a lot of respects because there were, and as you say in your book, there were the people that indulged in serious drugs. And then there were people like yourself that didn't. Can you just talk about that for a minute? Because I think there's a lot of misapprehension about that. Well, what year did you move to Seattle? 77. 77. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't start going to shows until 1980. And that's yeah. sort of 79 was when I started hearing punk rock and new wave music and stuff. And, you know, I listened to your radio show. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the, the little factions. Yeah, it was kind of strange, like, because you'd have shows at Roscoe Louie in the early 80s, yes. for example, and they were very arty. And there was the people that were a few years older than myself that were, you know, maybe college or post-college. They were um, fine artists, a lot of them, that were playing music. A lot of it was very English-influenced, like the Three Swimmers, for example, yes. were a very yeah. uh, UK post-punk kind of sounding band. Uh, a lot of tacky trousers with shirts tucked in. And then there was it's like someone like me who was a suburban skateboarder kid that was just, you know, I had a, you know, a punk t-shirt on and a, you know, flannel shirt over it and, and my skateboard in my hand coming to shows. And then there was the leather jacket punks that hung out on the Ave. And I, that was kind of a crowd. A lot of those guys were the ones that were doing some serious drugs. Yes. Uh, you know, I wasn't hanging out with them. Uh, I would go see their bands, you know, silly killers, you know, they were yes, yeah. you know, great. A lot of great bands from that side of the Seattle scene. Uh, you know, I hung out with you know, the rejectors and the accused, you know, kind of the other suburban kids playing hardcore. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. There, it wasn't cohesive, but everyone got along fine because there just weren't very many of us. So, 
in some respects there was because there was also another music scene at the time. There were bands that had been around for some time, like the Fastbacks and and and, and bands like that that really weren't part of this new. And I hate to say new wave, but this new sort of generation of kids that, like yourself, Mud Honey, Green River, uh, Tad, there was a there was a different sort of thing that was going on, and this is the big part about it that I think is kind of surprising to a lot of people. Nothing was being played on the radio unless it was on a show like mine. The commercial radio avoided right. the music for years. Which yeah. now, looking back on it, is kind of strange, isn't it? I mean, it's remarkable in some respects. Well, well, we had your radio show, and then we also had KZAM for like a year. That's right. right. Yes, or two years, maybe. I don't. I'm not, I don't remember how long it lasted. <laughs> it was about I a year. Yeah. Being shocked one time, I was. I remember it really clearly. I was driving my parents' car over the Mercer Island Bridge because I, I lived on. I grew up on Mercer Island, and the fastbacks in America came on KZAM. Yes. I mean, shocked that yeah. a local band was being played. I, I guess the Heats were played too. The um, Heats, right? Yeah. And the, there was the weren't there the Cowboys? Which the Cowboys as well. Cowboys. Yeah. And then there but was sort of kind of bar yeah. bands, though. Bar bands. Opinion. Then there was then on the other side there was Queensrÿche, and then the remnants yeah. of Hearts, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. Queensrÿche, what their EP, first EP came out in 1984, I think. Yes, Something like that. Yeah, that, that was the East Side metal scene. Metal scene, yes. Yeah, we East Side they played metal. the roller rinks out in uh, Bellevue. But of course, then right slap bang in the middle of all this was my late departed friend Bill Reefland mm. with the Blackouts. Yeah, uh, I mean that was a whole different story in a lot of respects. Yeah, the Blackouts were a unique band. I, you know, I saw them in probably 1980 or 81. And I didn't know anything about music, really. But the one thing that stood out about the Black House to me, like me and my buddies were like, oh, my God, that drummer is amazing. Like Bill really shined in that band, you know, and even to a kid that didn't know anything about being a musician, I knew that he was the guy. Yes. Yeah. yeah but yeah, the, the Black House were great. They, they were a very interesting Seattle band. We could go on, I mean, just sort of name dropping and name checking. Yep. There's so much to talk about. But that, in a lot of respects, is what your book is about, Steve. My guest, Steve Turner, his book is called Mud Ride, A Messy Trip Through the Grunge Explosion. And it's a delight to be able to talk to you. Let's throw in a piece of music and, and um, then we'll get back to talk. I want to I want to okay. get back and talk to you about the early days of recording with Mud Honey. But let's play a piece of music. What should we hear? Well, why don't we uh, start with Mud Honey, Suck You Dry. Excellent. Yeah. 
If you're just joining us, my guest is Steve Turner. His new book is titled Mud Ride, A Messy Trip Through the Grunge Explosion. I just got this book a couple of days ago and I picked the started reading it. And this is one of those things that happens when you when you have a book that you really I mean, I just could not get enough of it. I just I started reading, it, didn't put it down. In fact, I had other things to do. I, you know, and I was like, no, 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 I've got to read this partly because I knew I was going to be talking to you, Steve, and partly because I really enjoyed it. I mean, it was it's, it's a good read. It's, you, you, well, you've, you've, you've done a nice job. Also, graphically, I should tell everybody that it's it's just got a nice graphic feel to it, which I don't know how much you were in, involved in that but well done to whoever put that together well uh, that would be patrick barber did the the layout inside the the book and and jeff kleinsmith did the the cover he jeff kleinsmith has worked for sub pop for decades at this point you know i should i should also mention my co-author adam yes, Tettelin, yes. Uh, who is had a big hand in the, the whole thing as well so now how does that work? I'm just curious. Do you sit down with Adam and, and you sort of just start talking and, and he records it and then puts it into well, – how does that work? Well, this was sort of a pandemic project. So hmm. we, we actually didn't get together. We we did Zoom meetings. He he lives up on Vancouver Island, right. just north of yes. Victoria. Yeah, yeah. So he wasn't allowed into the country for right. what, a year and a half or something, yeah. right? Yeah. So we just did Zoom meetings every few days and then – you know, talked a lot about the structure of the book, how I wanted it to be sort of three parts, everything before Mud Honey, the glory years, if you will, and then what happens after the glory years yes. for the, the last third. So we kind of organized it that way and just a lot of transcribing. Um, Don Anderson, who used to do the f- magazines in Seattle, Backfire yeah. and Backlash, was a, yeah. she was a big part of the scene. She actually was tasked with uh, transcribing some of it. Cool. And then just kind of whipped it into shape with editing and more talking. So you just said something which I want to touch on. You just said glory years. So what were the glory years? And then I want to go back to the beginnings of, of Mud Honey. Sure. Well, I think, you know, collectively, the world really took notice of Seattle and grunge when Nevermind came out and exploded. And it came just out of the gate and exploded, right? Uh, so I think that's where most people consider the glory years. But, you know, Mudhoney, you know, if I'm jumping the gun here, Mudhoney started in January 1988. We didn't pay any dues or anything. As soon as we said we were going to be a band, we had Jonathan and Bruce excited to put something out and also Amphetamine Reptile in Minneapolis, our old friend Tom Hazelmeyer. We had two labels excited about whatever we were going to do before we'd even done it. And we had good shows as soon as we were up and running of like three months into rehearsing the four of us, we were, we started playing shows, I think maybe four, uh, but I mean, we didn't pay dues. We, so we were right out of the gate and we started recording and we put out touch me. I'm sick in the summer of 1988 super fuzz, big muff a few months later and went on tour opening for Sonic youth. I mean, we were handed, you know, it was kind of a silver platter. <laughs> Yes, I must touch on this because you mentioned it in your book, the name, because I know people over the years have asked you, where did you get the name Mud Honey? Oh, that's a Russ Meyer movie. We hadn't seen the movie yet, but, <laughs> yes. but it was Mark and I, I was really into a lot of psychotronic movies at the time, like B movies and Z movies. I was obsessed with biker movies and that kind of stuff. Uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis, all the, all the trashy stuff from the sixties and seventies. And, uh, We'd seen a few other Russ Meyer movies, uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Uh, I think we'd seen Beneath the Valley of the Super Ultra Vixens or <laughs> Vixens, something. Yes, one, yeah, of the, yeah. one of the Vixen movies. Obviously, the Faster Pussycat Kill Kill because it was yes. a biker movie. 
So Mark suggested we call ourselves Mud Honey after another Russmeyer movie, but we hadn't seen it. So we said, okay, that sounds good. But then we actually rented the movie and watched it. We were like, God, this better not be a terrible movie. <laughs> but it was good. It's actually a good one. It's a great story, but I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that over the years, people have asked you where the name came from. And I guess it's one of those stories you just, you have to sort of tell with a smile, I, get, I, I, I presume. I mean, you need a name, basically. You know, yeah. uh, Mark named Green River as well. That was, as well, that was his idea. And, uh, you know, I wasn't in love with the name Green River. Guess because it was a very loaded name at the time. Yes, yes it was. And I, I wasn't totally sure, but uh, I, I would jokingly tell people we named ourselves after the uh, the soda pop. <laughs> ah, yes, yeah, yes. Well, for those that don't know the story, Green River was well. Let's finish it off, Green River Murderer, because yes. that's that's the yeah. So, Steve. At the beginning, and I, and you again, you just sort of touched on it. That there weren't a lot of places to play. Really, there was no. sort of all age. Well, as you said, there was Roscoe Louis Gallery. There was the Metropolis. There was a number of places around, but really, there wasn't as such a club scene as we as we kind of think that there must have been. Yeah, it was. I mean, the Metropolis can't be overstated in its importance, I think, because yes. it was all ages and it ran for a year and a half. And that was the most stable years that the Seattle punk scene had as far as a venue where touring bands, like small touring bands would yes. come up from California. A lot of like, smaller hardcore bands, Code of Honor, Rebel Truth, all these little bands that maybe had one seven inch out or something Yes, could come up and, and play shows. And that was really important to us. Before that, we had the show box. We'd have the bigger shows. The, the Gorilla uh, Room. Yeah, but I didn't. I never. Well, the Grill Gardens, the first one. Oh, the Grill Gardens yes, yeah. was over twenty one, so I couldn't ah, yes, go there. Yes, yes, yes. yes. But then so the, the owner opened the the Gorilla Gardens, the two the Rock Theater that had two rooms. That was after the Metropolis, um, so that was actually another stable venue for at least a little while, maybe eighty five, eighty six. What happened during those years is that we all started turning twenty one, so there was a few small bars that would let bands like us play like you had the squid row that was i think tuesday night yes yeah uh, the vogue started having shows right. but i think only wednesday night yes and maybe the central was thursday night we didn't have <laughs> there's no weekend nights that we yeah. were allowed to play that's right we, that's we, had, we had the, the weekday nights this is the thing is that you and i know that scene only too well but uh, uh, so many of my listeners I'm, I'm trying to conjure up this this image for them of this of this city also you've got to, people have got to i guess understand that that seattle itself at the time was not this vibrant metropolis that it is today i mean it was it was a very different place yeah yeah i mean you the you know, the mid 70s were very hard on Seattle. Yes. With the uh, economic uh, downturn. I mean, there was that billboard with, with the last person leaving Seattle, please turn out the lights. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yes. That was right before you got there, probably. Yes. It, well, actually, the billboards yeah. were up when I got there. So, yes. Oh, I, yeah. That I, billboard I, stayed up for a long time. For a long time. Yeah. I remember that. So yeah. let's. Waylon let's... Jennings, actually, uh, Waylon Jennings sang a song called, Will the Last One Leaving Seattle, Please Turn Out the Lights? 
Right. Yes. Yeah, I found yeah. that as a B side of one of his his hits or something. Yeah. I don't think he wrote the song, but somebody did. Somebody wrote a country somebody song. Somebody wrote a song. Yeah, there, yeah. There was a Perry Como song called Seattle as well, and then of course yeah. later on, some years later, my good friend John Lydon did the song called Seattle after I interviewed him, and he wasn't very happy uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's a story that goes along with that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Green River opened for Pill at the Paramount. Yes. In 1980. Was that 85 or 86? It was after I had left Green River. I was actually with them. I was backstage with them, as were the members of Malfunction, strangely enough, uh, Regan and Landrew, and just hanging out and just flipping a lot of crap towards public image and their crew. Yep. And we, I, I think somebody in the Green River camp stole some wine from their backstage room and their deli platter. And we had it down in Green River's room. And I remember throwing some of the deli platter out the window onto their tour bus. And just a lot of disrespect going. And finally, this voice came down from above. Would you like to be silenced? It was Johnny Lydon, and we shut up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's another sort of part to that story, and that is um, um, uh, Martin Atkins will will verify this, is that John came into backstage where I was to before the show started to do uh-huh. do an interview. And the first thing John did was he went <laughs> and and gobbed on the floor and i said no 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 that's that's not acceptable and he said well f-. and, and then, <laughs> stormed off and, <laughs> so yeah. yeah so I, I i think maybe he was like a little upset about that platter of food being thrown out so probably it, yeah. yeah well yeah. The, the funny thing was that the thing that set us off was we were just howling with laughter that he demanded to have a lazy boy chair in the backstage room for him yeah, and that that just cracked us up no yeah. end. Yeah, know? well, we could go off on a tangent talking yeah. about John because he is, I mean, he is quite the character and 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 is, is full of anomalies. And uh, so, yeah. I, having he wrote a having, great book, I, I read his uh, first yes. autobiography. I thought it was excellent. It's an excellent book. He's yeah. also, a, um, and I before we go too far into this, but he's a very funny man and a very very smart man and yeah. I've, I've i've talked with john many times over the years and yeah mud honey at this point you've got a couple of singles out did you and mark and the rest of the band did was it your thinking at the time that okay this is it we're gonna be we're gonna be big big punk stars uh no no i certainly never thought that i you know, I, I dragged my heels quite a bit through the years at different times with Mud Honey, and went back to college in 1990 for a while. And you know, uh, I'd never dreamt of being a rock star or a pop star or anything like that. It it didn't seem like it was uh, it was supposed to be my destiny in my mind. I, I didn't I didn't see it. I didn't dream. I didn't dream of it. I didn't want it. Especially after I saw some of my friends reach those dizzying heights. And I then it was just, yeah, I, I, I didn't want it. So when we would get the, asked that question in the early 90s after Nirvana hit big, they'd ask us if we thought we would get to be, you know, a huge band or did, did we feel, you know, kind of slighted somehow that we weren't as big as some of our friends. Me and Mark, who I mean, Mark and I generally did the interviews and still kind of do. Dan has never liked doing interviews, but right, yes. You just say, "Have you heard our records?" Like, no, we're not. We're not going to be pop stars. Like, listen to us. Like, <laughs> it, it was an exciting time, but I didn't. I didn't want that stuff for myself. 
not thinking that you're going to be big stars, what did you think? What was the sort of the the ambition, if you like, or what was the where did you guys think you were going? What did you have individual ideas? Did you? I think yeah, I think everybody had slightly different points of view. I think we were just kind of in it for the ride. We didn't expect it to last long. Generally, at that point in our lives, our none of our bands lasted very long. So I, you know, I famously told my parents, "Give me two years to do this, and I'll go back to college." You know, like I said, we we kind of hit the ground running and. It was exciting and fun, and we were on tour and putting out records, and we'd gotten further than we ever thought we would, I think, because each of us, but we didn't ever set out any other goals. Maybe we, we should have, but we were just young and in it for kind of a, a laugh in some ways and having a good time. And that's what I want to get to as well. I want to take another musical break and talk to you about that old adage, sex and drugs and rock and roll, which ties in with good times. And Want to explore that with you, Steve? Let's play yeah. another piece of music. What What would you like to hear? Uh, why don't we do Mud Honey's uh, "Good Enough"? Good enough, yes, good enough. Okie doke. All right, we're going to play that.
Good Enough from Mud Honey, selected by my guest, Steve Turner. His new book is titled Mud Ride, A Messy Trip Through the Grunge Explosion. Sex and drugs and rock and roll, it comes up every time. I've I've talked to so many people <laughs> over the years, and everybody's got a different kind of take on this one. I remember Bowie said to me, yeah, I like it, all of it. <laughs> so... <laughs> What do you think, Steve? Talk to me about the good times. Does it involve sex and drugs and rock and roll? Uh, I mean, it can. Yeah. I think one thing about the Seattle scene was that there was a lot of psychedelic drug use. Uh, MDMA and ecstasy were quite popular in the 80s in the in our scene. Yes. You know, think of Bruce Pavitt. He, he loved that stuff. Yes. And I, I never did those drugs. I never really did any drugs. Um, I liked beer. I was I was a beer guy, and uh, but yeah, there I I think the psychedelics w- was an influence on the scene. Uh, there were some people that were getting into the harder stuff. Heroin definitely crept in. Mark definitely uh, got in too deep with heroin for a while. He's you know talked about that quite a bit. I was coming out of this kind of idealistic hardcore punk kind of thing, and um, when I was a teenager, I considered myself straight edge, um, yes. and. The sex thing, obviously, I I had girlfriends and I liked, you know, girls and that sort of stuff. But uh, I didn't want to use it as a way of getting laid. That seemed like kind of a cheap, kind of Hollywood, hard rocker kind of move. I wanted to meet people. And, you know, years later, I kind of looked back at my early years. I was single for a lot of those early Mudhoney years. Yeah. And, you know, I had I got a girlfriend in 1991, essentially, uh, Karen, who I was with most of the 90s. Um, but before that, I didn't really I didn't I didn't partake on the road. And I looked back at, at one point as an older man, going like, why didn't I? But I, that was just where my head was at at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we drank a lot of beer. You drank um, a lot of beer. Yeah. yeah, that was kind of our, our have a good time. Drink a lot of beer. What about the rock and roll part? Steve, here you were. You're you're on the road. You're playing rock and roll. This is what you're doing. But did it feel to you like like this was the rock and roll life? Well, sure, but it because we were hanging out with other bands of our ilk, and there's all these bands running around the world. It was kind of crazy how many American bands could tour Europe yes. in the late '80s, early '90s. Little bands like we'd never even heard of were over there. We're like, wait, what? Like, yeah. Like, how did you get here? Because there was a couple uh, booking agents, uh, paperclip in in the Netherlands, would bring over all these little weird, obscure, uh, not just Seattle bands, just American bands. Yes, yeah. And so there are all these little bands cruising around that we'd, we'd run into. And yeah, so, it, I mean, it, it was kind of dirty and scummy. Some A lot of the clubs around the world are kind of scummy old rock clubs, you know? And uh, <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. yeah, we felt like we were... We knew we were in a rock and roll band. <laughs> I want to I want to talk to you about the difference between being in Seattle and then touring around the states and then going to Europe and going to Australia, going all over the place. I mean, you did you you toured all over the place, but there was yeah. a difference. And I'm wondering, I wonder if you can tell my listeners a little bit about that. We hit the road in the fall of 1988, and uh, what was kind of interesting was that that feels like that was the end of an era kind of because we would go play places that had very individual and unique scenes still. Mm. Uh, I remember Kansas city being the, one of the, the funnier ones where 
we went, we just played some crappy, you know, veterans hall or something like that. And then went to a house party afterwards where the entertainment for the night was these guys in the basement um, slam dancing with giant cardboard boxes. (laughs) And they're just like, and people dance differently in different cities. Uh, You know, it it was, it was still kind of unique to their, their territories. And we were playing some, you know, small, funky places, Lexington, Kentucky, you know, things like that. And uh, um, that, that got, it became kind of equalized quickly. Uh, and I think that's because MTV started playing bands, sort of you know underground stuff. You know they had yes. 150 minutes, and people saw how you know moshing looked, and so everything kind of became the same by 1991, maybe. Even like when we first went to Europe in 1989, there were some kind of unique, really fun, strange things going on. I remember a show in Belgium there was stage diving, but it was very organized. There was literally a line at the edge of the stage and a person <laughs> facilitating the person who was stage diving. Uh, it was very organized. And that the I, irony being, I think it was at like this anarchist uh, collective place, but it was very organized chaos. <laughs> um, so, you know, things became more similar pretty quickly. You know, when I first went on tour in the fall of 88, I kind of thought I would find a place in America that I would rather live. And I was keeping my eyes open. Okay, where am I going to end up? You know, like there's got to be something better than Seattle. And I toured all the way around the States and I realized I didn't want to leave Seattle. Like Seattle was as good as it gets as far as a a music scene and a place to live, I think. Yes. Not that I live in Seattle anymore, but I like the Northwest. Let's talk about music, Steve, and writing music. And and the music of Mud Honey. I know a lot of my listeners are gonna want to know how you and Mark and the rest of the guys put songs together. And was there always a a certain order of how you did things? I know, for instance, you write about in your book that you're you're a bit of a musicologist yourself, and 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 and, and you love you love going back in time and 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 listening to music and folk music. You have a great interest in and garage bands, a terrific interest. Putting all that together, as Mud Honey, as a band, how did you go about writing songs? We uh, we've always written collectively together. A lot of bands have a leader, if you will, a lead singer that comes in with songs mostly put together. Then you kind of add bits to. I've been in bands like that. Yeah. Um, we show up at practice and we'll say, in, you know, maybe one of us will have a, a couple of riffs that we think go together. So yeah. we'll just start jamming on that stuff and slowly work it into shape. And uh, Mark will then figure out how to sing over it. You know, that's generally the order of it. It's somebody has a riff. We put it together. We play it for a few hours, if you will, and put it down on on a quick demo tape that then Mark tries to figure out how to get lyrics to it. Then he'll come back with a final arrangement, I guess, of the song to fit what his lyrics do. He's never been comfortable with just coming in with fully formed songs. It's happened a couple times, but it's it's a rarity. He really likes the process of the four of us in a room banging it out it has been noted over the years and i and i think you'll agree on this that the title of some of the mud honey songs are a little different a little interesting (laughs) any comments 
Well, Mark has a great way with words. Yeah. I mean, the, all the lyrics is, you know, 99.5%. Like in the early days, there was a couple little lyrical things I added, but uh, it's almost all Mark and yeah. has been. Like his offer is like, hey, if you want to write lyrics, you sing that song. And I don't want to sing in Mudhoney. <laughs> so I don't. Right. Yeah. Because <laughs> he's he's the voice of Mudhoney. It's like, it's, it's you know, I, I don't want to step on that at all. Yeah. Or act like I'm trying to, you know, it's, it's, but yeah, Mark is a really clever wordsmith, I think. And he works really hard at it. Uh, he goes through like kind of dry spells lyrically where it's hard to write lyrics that he feels he's not repeating himself or it's just trite and, you know, kind of corny or cliche. Uh, that's why some of the later songs he has, like, they're like little novels. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't want to repeat himself. So sometimes that's the slow part of getting songs done is him coming up with lyrics that he's OK with because he's been writing lyrics for 40 years. Uh, here's a question which I I'm sort of almost reluctant to ask. And, and that is getting along with each other. And, and it's been a long time now, not that you've been together all the time. And there's times when you're not you're way apart. But how is that? How does that work, being in a band and remaining remaining friends? Well, I think what's helped us in the last 20 some odd years, like since Guy joined the band essentially, yes. is that we don't it's not a full-time endeavor. You know, it was kind of a full-time thing and it was I think even though we tried not to think of it as our job, it was our job. It, it paid the bills completely for, you know, a decade, over a decade. When that stopped and Matt Lucan retired from the band mm -hmm. and we got dropped from Warner Brothers. We took a year off to think about if we should even continue. We decided to. We had all sorts of bad ideas of how like we well, what if we change our name and just continue the three of us? And that seemed really dumb. You know, that, like, that only lasted for a couple yeah. of days. We'd be like, no, that's a bad idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Once we kind of came back together with Guy, we were sort of re-energized, but we also couldn't do it full time. Uh Dan had started having kids. He was the first of us to to go there. We all had other jobs and commitments. Guy was just finishing up nursery nursing school, nursery school, nursing school. <laughs> and you know, we were kind of embarking on a different part of our lives, I guess. So we kind of had to fit Mudhoney into a different landscape. And doing that required a lot more planning and and work. And we kind of came to appreciate it, I think, in a different way. And that's also part of getting older and maturing and things right. like that. So we enjoy each other's company still. Most nights on tour, the four of us will have dinner together. Not every night, because sometimes I have to just get out and go find a vegan restaurant or something. Okay. And if they want to go, like, because they really, especially like in Europe, they love having the local foods. So yes. Guy yeah. in particular will ask, what is this region known for? And it's it's Europe, so it's usually some really meaty kind of thing that we won't eat. <laughs> yeah. So some of those nights, I'm just you know what, I'm going to go find a Vietnamese restaurant or a vegan joint. And, yeah. You know, like you guys have at it. <laughs> But yeah, we, we enjoy each other's company and we take it, we don't take it for granted at this point that we're, we're still able to do it, you yeah. know, uh, that people care, yeah. that people show up. So we're quite grateful for all that. And we try to respect each other's boundaries and have a good time. Steve Turner is my guest. His book is called Mud Ride, A Messy Trip Through the Grunge Explosion. This really is a good read. <laughs> Let's play another piece of music. 
Uh, do you want something uh, like a solo song? If you like, whatever you choose, it's up to you. Yeah. Let's go for uh, one of my solo songs. How about uh, I Know You, Scorpio? I Know You, Scorpio. Yes. That's from my third solo CD, New Wave Punk Asshole. Which is a terrific title, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's from a, uh, it was a, a button, a pen I found on the floor of a punk show at the uh, showbox. Oh, really? In 1981, yeah. I guess oh. I always thought I have to use that someday for something. I know you, Scorpio, from Steve Turner. Whilst we're playing this, I want you to think about the word legacy and what that means for Mud Honey. Right after we hear this. I know you, Scorpio, from Steve Turner, from one of his solo albums. Did you say your third solo album? Was that it? was my third yeah. solo record. That was basically, the band was called Steve Turner and His Bad Ideas. Yes. At that yes. point with Johnny yeah. Sangster, Jim Sangster, and, and Kevin Warner. Legacy. It's a word that people sort of bandy around. And I'm just wondering whether, as a member of a band that is, really does have an incredibly large, uh, extensive kind of almost like a cult following i would say in, in in some respects do you think about that about legacy what that means for mud honey sure especially just going through the process of writing a book you know back 20 years ago when people would ask us this because you would always say that or at least i would always say that i think we were we were going to be a footnote to a bigger a bigger thing um in the big uh, chronicles of punk rock or grunge or whatever, that we'd just be kind of a footnote that, you know, oh, also th these guys existed. 
but then we just kept going. So we have more of a legacy now. And a lot of bands our age are kind of considered legacy bands. I think of a band like X. They broke their own rule recently. But when they got back together with uh, Billy Zoom on guitar, they weren't doing any new material. And they they considered themselves a legacy act. They were just kind of bringing late 70s, early 80s version of X for people to see yes. and they didn't want to write any new material. They didn't think it was their place that they, but that, that was John Doe talking to me about it. I remember. And uh, I'm glad they actually went back in the studio a few years back and actually made a new record. Cause it's really right. good. One, yeah. there's no reason to like stop. You know, I, I mud honey collectively, we like making new records. Um, we're all really proud and pleased with our new record. I see no reason to stop doing that. I think our legacy is that we just keep going. But yes. we're not alone in our generation of bands either. Dinosaur Jr. keeps going. You know, they come from the exact same place we do. They were hardcore kids. So I, th I think the idea of what the legacy is, is for other people to decide, not me or us. I think it, we have a long history and obviously there's been a book about us. There's been a documentary about us. But that's for other people to do. And my book is not so much about the legacy. It was just my story. Yes. And, and, and that's something which I think is really important to point out, which leads me to ask you about memory, Steve. Because uh -huh. in writing this book, you you give us a lot of stories. You give us a lot of memories. You go into, into great detail in some respects. And I'm wondering about that, whether there was any point for you – how far you went, what you wanted to talk about. Did you edit yourself in that respect? Well, yeah, I think so. Uh, we started the process. I actually dug out old interviews with Mudhoney and read them. I read our chapter in Our Band Could Be Your Life. You know, yes. the, And I read about half of Keith Cameron's book on us as well. Right. And I was fact-checking a little bit. Uh, collectively, I defer to Dan Peters' memory he has the best memory out of all of us. Okay. And I was fact checking some things with him and I was fact checking earlier stuff with my brother and sister. And then I stopped fact checking because it's my memoir. It's my memory. <laughs> and, you know, I, I've been pointing out lately that one of my favorite music books is please kill me. The oral history of the New York city music scene in the seventies. It's a brilliant book. The editing is amazing, but people disagree with each other nonstop in that book. They'll be you know, that's one of the great things of the editing. They'll because people completely contradicting each other on every page. Yes. And that's part of memory. But this is mine. Uh, there's little factual errors here and there that uh, one of our more fastidious fans has pointed out. But that's that's going to happen. You know, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. No. <laughs> well so, said. Well, said. yes, in my memories, you know, it, one of the funniest things that's happened so far in and having people that I know and love reading the book is my sister, like I, my sister had six kids and she has maybe 12 grandkids at this point. And uh, we're all on a group chat, a family group chat. And she had to like point out, she's like, she gets this thing. Okay. If anyone makes it to page 22 in Steve's book and didn't know that I was pregnant before I got married and that, and that uncle Patrick is gay, put the book down. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I was like, yeah, maybe I should have made sure that that was okay with them. But <laughs> you, you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, Steve, that this book came about for you because of, well, COVID because of lockdown. Yeah. 
Do you think that you would have written this book if that hadn't have happened? It was Adam's idea originally. He contacted okay. me okay. and asked yeah. if if I would be interested. And I thought about it for a little while and we kind of talked more. And that's where the idea kind of, I started thinking, well, it could be good, but I really wanted to talk a lot about Seattle before the explosion, you know, and cause that's what formed us in my mind, you know, the metropolis days, if you will. And so I wanted to talk a lot about that stuff and the idea kind of grew on me, I guess. The fact that COVID was happening, I think is a big part of it because I wasn't going on tour. I didn't have a job. I was sitting in the house with my two sons, <laughs> essentially like twiddling my thumbs. You know, it was, no one knew what it was at first. Those first few months were just so bizarre. I'd go out on a walk and everybody, nobody in my neighborhood would even be on the same side of the street. If you saw someone else on the street, you would get in the middle of the road or something. Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It was just a really weird, bizarre time. And I don't want to say, I don't know if it's damaged, but the impact of it can't be overstated, especially on you know, the younger generation, I guess, like my kids, like I, this is going to be their the biggest uh, event in their lives. I hope, I hope there's nothing worse that comes, comes down the pike. <laughs> if you could sum it up in just maybe a sentence or even a word, but what would you like people to take away from your book? You know, I tried to focus on the local musicians and what fascinates me is how many of us in this generation from Seattle are still making music, yeah. whether it's our jobs or if we had even just much success at all. There's yes. just so many people that keep going and making music and making art. And that's inspiring to me, doing art for its own sake. I just want to let you know that I've thoroughly enjoyed talking with you. You're a, you're a terrific uh, communicator, a, a great guest. I've really enjoyed your music over the years, and it's been it's been a pleasure to be able to 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 say that I played your music way way back when. <laughs> Steve, but uh, thank you so much for doing this. It's it's been terrific. I've really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, it's been it's been it's been a real pleasure. The book. Mud Ride, A Messy Trip Through the Grunge Explosion. My guest, Steve Turner. Steve, thank you so very much for joining us at Life Elsewhere. Yeah, thank you.
Yes, of course. Mud Honey with Touch Me, I'm Sick. I couldn't resist including that legendary cut. A big thank you to my guest, Steve Turner. All the details and link to his book, Mud Ride, are up at lifeelsewhere.co. And make sure you pop on over there to learn about all the shows we produce, the guests, the books, and the music. And of course, send me your feedback. Let me know what you think of Life Elsewhere. My email address comes up in the closing credits. And to take us there, music from a band that Steve Turner mentioned as being a big influence for him and Mark Arm when they began Mud Honey. Here then, the extraordinary folk devils fronted by the late and sadly missed Ian Lowry forever. Till next time, be well, be safe, and it's the cheapest gift you'll ever give. Be nice. Bye-bye.
listening to Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lane. Behind the scenes assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. 